this is one of the rare times as a futurist where short-term uncertainty is more than long-term uncertainty. We've got demographic trends, we've got political trends, we've got uh, environmental trends, we've got economic trends that are pointing towards addressing some of these, these chronic issues. So we have trends pointing towards more sustainability and circular design. We have trends pointing towards confronting economic and social injustice. Over the long term, that's the wave you probably want to get on because for the rest of the decade, those are the big problems of, of our time and employees and customers want their brands to be engaged in the big fights of our time. I'm Steve Hurst. And I'm Vesey Ivanova. We're with Found Brand Agency. I'm Christian Cruz, founder of Wavepoint. You're listening to Wavepoint Found, a podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change. The future is always uncertain. With the United States election less than two weeks away on top of everything else that has happened in 2020, we're all thinking about the future right now. Or it might be more accurate to say that a lot of us are worrying about the future. In this episode of Wavepoint Found, we're going to try giving all that thinking and worrying about the future more perspective and purpose. We're going to start by talking about how businesses can think about and use the future in a way that lets them take action, empowers their teams, frees them, instead of limiting them. Vision and action together is how we shape the future into what we want it to be. Taking a side, even if it's polarizing, might be the best way to navigate change and make sure you find yourself confidently positioned for what's to come. So we find ourselves a couple weeks before the 2020 election. 2020 as a whole, it feels like the world is on fire. Personally, it's hard to understand, you know, where to go next. From a business perspective, it has to be crazier, right? Companies are doing a lot of planning around this, trying to figure out what to do next. But is it time to stop reading the tea leaves and, and decide what actions to take? Do you think that's where we are? Obviously, we can't predict the election. But it is true that most businesses have been doing multiple scenarios around what may happen. Obviously, if there are actions that are good to do no matter which way the future goes, yes, they should be starting those now. But it's a, a plan is just words on a page if you don't have the assets and capabilities to move forward with it. Because again, the companies that are first out of the gate will capture more value and they'll get more customers. Can you think of an example of, of, of a company was able to take advantage of a shift similar to what we're living through now? Yeah, it's hard from a political stand, standpoint because you know companies in the past have operated like arms dealers. They'd love to sell weapons to everybody if they could, right? By choosing a side in the past, you have limited your market share. Moving forward, it's very clear that companies are going to have to choose sides. The obvious example there is Nike with... Colin Kaepernick, um, certainly that was a very polarizing at the beginning, but they knew their customers. And, and yes, they lost a total addressable market of some people who did not agree with Colin Kaepernick's stance, um, but they gained a huge amount of sales from their core customer base and probably added to that from consumers who probably may not have been Nike buyers before, but admired the stance they were taking and they came into the, the market. So for companies, as they start looking at the politics moving forward, it may be about, in very political terms, mobilizing your base. And so companies have to start thinking politically. So it's one thing to think about you know, picking a side once you know the topic that you're capable of, of addressing in your business, right? But how do you 
with everything going on right now, how do you find the things that you can address with your business? How do you know where to focus? Well, so much of it is about listening to your your employees and your stakeholders and you know knowing your identity. What are those things that align with what values you have as a company and the employee base that you have? If you look at some of the walkouts going on at Facebook, Google, and Amazon, there's a disconnect a little bit between what those companies espouse to be and what their identity is supposed to be and who their stakeholders and their employees are. What you don't want to do is spend a ton of money and time developing an inorganic <laughs> capability to address this when it's not part of your core. You should have uh, within you as a company, you should already have either through your, your marketing and advertising legacy, um, you should already have assets that you can leverage to say, this is who I am and this mm -hmm. is who I choose to stand for. What, uh, when you say an inorganic capability, what does that mean? Inorganic may be the wrong word, but it, it's a bolt on. It's something that's not part of your existing assets and capabilities. It may be something that you have to either go get mm -hmm. or you have to, you have to build in either case, it's probably not as core to your identity as you, as it could be, because obviously if it was, it would already be there. So that's a bit of a warning sign. If, if you're looking at your identity and you're realizing that you have to add something on you know, maybe you're looking in the wrong place and maybe you haven't really found your corporate identity as well as you thought you had. Well, right. And if you're trying to enter the market with that capability that isn't uh, connected to your, your identity or connected to your core capabilities, you're even less equipped to encounter these polarizing moments and address, you know, real change in the market with something that it isn't as exercised. It's a, maybe more awkward. And again, that's why companies have been squeamish about doing it, right? Because if they don't do it authentically, they're going to get killed in the marketplace. But I think there was a recent survey, I can't remember who did it, but that basically said customers want to deal with companies that have values and especially millennials and Gen Zs want to be employed by companies that have values. They're not necessarily as concerned about what the, that those values exactly match up to them. So in some cases, companies just need to do something or stand for something and know that in doing so, they're probably helping connect with their consumers and employees more than if they were to not do anything. Yeah, I, I think that was an Accenture piece of research that you're talking about. There was another one that just came out recently from Ogilvy, which is interestingly connected, talking about the expectations the customers have around the brands that they interact with contributing to their wellness. I thought that was similarly interesting because wellness, the way it's defined here, isn't you know what, connected to healthcare necessarily, or even wellness like you would get from like fitness or going to the spa or HR, you know, typical HR. Ex function. Yeah. yeah, they were expecting wellness from financial institutions in the sense of your financial well-being is one of the most stressful things that you deal with in your life. Therefore, should it be part of the responsibility of financial institutions to ensure that you? are being taken care of essentially within the uh, constraints of what they provide. There's alignment there between the idea of values and it's kind of a universal human value. The definition of society is that we take care of each other. So by expecting brands to care for our wellness, we're inviting them into some of these constraints that we place on interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. Certainly this time is expanding some of our notions in, in many ways for companies it was not something to get involved in in politics but now i think we are all expecting all of us to to care and have a point of view 
And as we get more intimate with the brands that we work with, and as brands become a more intimate part of the lives of the people through social media and through more direct contact, there is that expectation that, you know, at corporate entities like the people around us, we're sort of expecting to take a side. Many of us have been on social media and seen the posts of, you know, <laughs> take a stand or you're not my friend. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's infecting, you know, the relationship with brands and with companies. It, it, a similar example might be we got very used to Amazon Prime over the last few years where you can click on one thing and it shows up in two days. And that has trickled over to business supply chains. So if I'm a supplier in a supply chain, I'm going to have to give business to my, my clients as fast and as simple as Amazon does it. This idea of, oh, you're going to order something for the business and it's going to show up in four to six weeks and you're not going to be able to track it and you're not going to know where it is. I mean, the supply chains have had to radically change how they serve their customers in the B2B stream. If you order a box of pens for your office, you better be there in two days and you better have been able to track it the entire way. Connecting that back to politics, the there's a challenge there as a business or as a customer of Amazon's. There are supply chain pressures. There's, you know, can you deliver this immediate gratification to me, whether I'm a customer or a, or a business-to-business interaction? On the other hand, there are you know political challenges that Amazon itself represents, such, that, as? such as the ethical issues with how they treat their employees, for example, or mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. environmental implications of just the sheer <laughs> quantities of cardboard that we receive every single day. There's there are large and small issues. There's you know we've touched on this I think before, but ethical issues with the way that. Amazon, on one hand, presents itself as a an enabler of exactly this kind of supply chain fluidity. On the other hand, they are looking at what products are most popular and then white labeling those products and essentially stepping into competitor role with people whom they profess to help. That's very complicated. The, the direct Jeff Bezos involvement in Washington Post and, and in intermedia, right? So Amazon or Jeff Bezos has made it very clear political stand yes. for, you know, I'm sure a variety of reasons. So definitely p- politically fraught. And it, it, whether it's politically fraught, I think it, you know, depends on your perspective, but you cannot argue that it is highly political. Yeah. Right. If we take a step back and look historically at where we're at in the information economy, we're into a mature curve of the information economy where early investments are now paying off in massive profits and to some extent monopolization. Obviously, we've heard that Google is getting sued for monopolistic behavior now. And so if you go back in, in periods of history, the robber barons from the 1890s you know, up to the 1920s, they went through that maturity curve with industrialization. And what happened at the end of that is you had a massive reset and more people were able to benefit from the massive industrialization. We're looking at a similar period now where we have a few people making an enormous amount of profit because they invested early and they cornered the market on various things. That The future is going to be one where that evens out. The classic example is Ford Motor Company, right? Went and uh, worked for Ford in the plants and they made a decent salary that could support their families. And so you had an enormous number of uh, blue collar workers going to the plant every day and making a middle class 
income that was then spent, you know, in other ways that boosted the, the economy. Today, you've got hundreds of thousands of people going and working in Amazon warehouses, not making a, day, uh, a livable wage. So not even poor, but below poor. And, you know, it's the second or third job that they may have. Moving forward as a futurist, I would see that expanding out. So Amazon is, is certainly going to be having some significant pressures in the future around living wage for their employees. I think it's interesting referencing the robber barons, and I'm sure we could go further back in history and look at other examples where there was a new technology that created this spike in inequality and spike in growth. Is that just the pattern? I mean, trying to pull back and trying to not be emotional about what's happening in the moment that's personal and political. If we pull back, is that just how it works? There's this spike where a new technology brings about inequality and the accompanying surge in growth and disruption, and then things just kind of balance out. Yeah, technology is democratized. A more recent example would be the tech bubble that happened in the late 90s, in the early and late 90s. Democratized the ability for almost anyone to connect their computer and their information to everybody else's. You had this enormous wave where companies like Nortel and Bay Networks and Qualcomm could not make enough servers and web equipment to handle the boom of individuals buying their own web servers and sticking them in their basements. Before that, companies talked to each other and to others all the time through proprietary networks. So the beauty of the World Wide Web was it became a common protocol and it democratized. And so you had this huge boom overnight of this whole new market. So I, I agree with that. There are That is typically how it works. It, it costs a lot of money to get technologies deployed and out there, but over time, those costs drop. What can also happen is you get this bubble where a bunch of companies come in and over-invest in equipment, and then it's too early for the rest of the market. They, they collapse, they go bankrupt, and then all that investment gets sold off for pennies on the dollar, and then a whole new wave pops in, like the real deep wave. And I think some of this gets back to kind of Gartner's, what do they call it, the hype curve. That's a standard way that technologies move into society. Some futurists and historians that look back and sort of said there's these longer waves. So there's longer wave people. Kondratiev talks about these 70-year economic cycles. But yeah, there is a pattern. There is a so this is important. There is a historical pattern to how you know new technologies and new industries evolve. And we are at that sort of place of reckoning, I would say, for the information economy where it's going to start re-democratizing and value that is generated is going to be distributed more broadly because if it doesn't, you know, the old saw about socialism, you eventually you run out of other people's money. <laughs> it's the same way with extreme capitalism. If 10 people in the United States have all the money, nobody's buying anything from their businesses. The pandemic has highlighted the need for us to have a more equitable distribution of value based on things that are created. So I'm not calling for some like socialist uprising or any of that but in historical terms the advantage will move to the workers soon and it is more than likely that more people will have livable wages over time so you just talked about these waves of disruptive technology or movements that happen and we're talking about these spikes and polarization or these, these change events that we've seen this year exemplified how do businesses get ahead of that? Like five years ago, was there a way to tell that all of these things would converge roughly around now? One, in order to better build capabilities to handle that and, and address a need in the market and, and fulfill a purpose. 
or to better target when to act so that you're not sitting on a, a warehouse full of overpriced equipment and going bankrupt. Or undersupplied in cleaning supplies, for example. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good example of, of both things. So on the one hand, you don't want history to catch up and pass you by while you're still sitting on the sidelines. On the other hand, and there, because there's a cost of doing nothing that is hard to express in business. So it's super easy to say, we got in too early, we spent a bunch of money on something and it didn't pan out and we lost all this money because the market wasn't there yet. It's incredibly hard to say, here's how much money we lost by not getting into the market earlier. The best proxy I've done that for, for other clients is to go back and say, here's all the things you had in house that you didn't capitalize on. And here's how much you spent to acquire them later, right? <laughs> that gap is your profit, right? So examples of, there were many companies that had in-house uh, energy bars, energy drinks, water things, vitamin water things. And then vitamin water is one example. I, I know three large CPG companies that had the idea of vitamin water in-house. They didn't do anything with it. And then I can't remember who it was, somebody bought vitamin water for $4 billion. So that gap is profit, mm -hmm. right? That $4 billion you spent instead of building in-house so there is a cost to doing nothing that is harder for companies to understand versus what they're more familiar with, which is I got into early and, oh, this was a trend and I built a bunch of stuff and nobody bought it. That's an easy one for companies to see. So the, the key here is to understand the opportunity cost of not doing anything for companies. That's one reason they have to get in. I think that this illustrates one of the biggest values that foresight and doing the work around foresight provides, which is to start to wrap your head around that opportunity cost, because otherwise you're only reacting out of loss aversion. You're, you're, you, you see, okay, well, if we invest all of this and it doesn't work out, we're, we know exactly what we're going to lose and that's going to hurt and we don't want to do it. It's a very emotional and immediate reaction to that. So in order to counterbalance that, in order to make risk feel in order to properly judge the risk of doing nothing, you need to first illustrate what you stand to lose if you do. So you mentioned the process of foresight, and I think that's really critical. I wrote an article a few years ago about the act of foresight. It's not, it's not just an intellectual exercise. In fact, there's a fad now going around where rather than doing the hard work of leading a company through a scenario planning process where you have a bunch of workshops and you together figure out different ways the future may go. If you do some research, you can find just like there are only what, six different stories of narrative. There's a certain number of archetypal futures. Hmm. And so a lot of, especially in this time when it's harder to do workshops and things, foresight professionals are just doing a shortcut and they're saying, okay, here's hmm. four scenarios. There's a collapse, transformation, steady state, et cetera. And, you know, that's not the point. You're absolutely right in that the point is the process. And it's by going through the process of putting yourself into these different futures that you can then get alignment and belief that the future is something different than the steady state that it might be. So you're absolutely right in that. And, and we both had a former boss who used to say that salespeople and consultants are a bit like lions. They just, they lie around all day and they go for the easy prey. <laughs> and the short answer is companies don't want to change. If what's working is working, maximize your efficiencies and maximize your profit by just keep doing the same thing. You don't want to keep changing. And so foresight can be a threat to identity and to existing 
ways of doing things. And a lot of times it's greeted hostily inside. So the process of foresight can get you off your butt, so to speak, and into acting into alternative futures. Because that's one thing we do know, the future is not going to be like the past. Part of w why you want to go take your company through this process is to create alignment. Part of why it needs to be a process that's anchored in your identity is because otherwise you're doing something that doesn't pertain to you. So going back to the question, I think, of this episode is, how do you know which parts of the future to look at? What do you, how do you know what to pay attention to and what to ignore? How do you define the right focus for you? Daniel Kahneman has this excellent quote about how intelligence is not the ability to reason, it's the ability to understand what's important to you and deploy your attention accordingly. How, as a company, do you then, what process do you take to deploy your attention accordingly so that you can actually benefit and be proactive? Probably the quote that I'll get known for as a futurist is not that deep, but it's the future is a really big place. So the process of foresight is just really simply understanding and planning for uncertainty and change. So in traditional strategic planning environments, companies eliminated uncertainty and just planned around what they could predict, which worked for a long time in a lot of industries that where things were slow moving and you could see change from a long way away. That's not the world we're in anymore. We're in a world where there's constant uncertainty and change. And so foresight tools are just a process by which companies and not just individuals within companies, hopefully, but through collaborative foresight activities can arrive at a shared and aligned view about what's important in the future. And that's based on a couple of things. It's based on what is your strategic intent as a company. It's based on the external factors that are influencing that strategic intent and what assets and capabilities you have. If you're a company that is really good at logistics for getting things from A to B, um, you're going to be looking at the world of what's going to be influencing logistics moving forward. Is it automation? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it predictive analytics? You know, there's a lot of different things influencing logistics right now. Depending on what your, your company's strategic intent is and where you want to be in the world, then you assemble the trends and emerging issues that are influencing that. And you say, how might they go differently? You look for critical uncertainties and you build very holistic external business environments. It's important not to just look at individual trends. If you just look at one trend, like sustainability, without looking at other trends, nuclear fusion technologies, or what we just heard about in the news this past week, room temperature superconductors, then you're missing the whole picture. So the key is it's not how individual trends may develop, but it's how those individual trends develop and then interact with each other to create sort of emergent change. You have to respond to those trends because if you don't, you're going to get left behind by your competitors, but it's not going to give you any competitive advantage. It's only going to keep you at market growth. To get competitive advantage, you have to look for those unique differentiating things and go after those. And that's where multiple trends coming together, where shopper behavior plus predictive analytics um, plus new packaging, plus new logistics. When all of those different trends come together, then you can say, oh, I can create a business that does X. And my competitors don't know that yet because they haven't done the same piece of work. In addition to understanding the multiple trends, thinking of it as a landscape or even a system of things working together, adding to that who you are and your identity so that you actually pursue something that you are very good at or are uniquely positioned to do well, then you're really supercharging the ability to leap beyond your competitors. 
there are a couple pieces to it. There's a piece that says, here are all the trends that are combining to create some insight about the future that's interesting to me. The next one says, here's the value proposition, the future value proposition I want to give my, con my consumer or my customer in this world. And then you say, okay, what do I have lined up? Do I have assets and capabilities that allow me to enter this marketplace with low hurdles? Like I don't have to spend a bunch of money to get in here. I have assets, capabilities, competencies, brand identity in this space already to allow me to compete. But then there's that next bucket, which is innovation, which is, okay, knowing what I know, how can I innovate, create new competencies to really truly differentiate me from everybody else who are, who's moving into that space? What is the innovation I'm going to do between now and then to win? Because that's the beauty of foresight. It gives you time. It's not like, oh, I have to scramble and build this new asset in six months. It says, this market's going to develop over the next three to five years. Between that time, what's the innovation I can do in-house and the testing and prototyping I can do? What's the acquisition I need to get to bring in-house and to have it be organic by the time this thing comes along? One thing that I think companies, when they're thinking about their assets and capabilities and what they're good at, tend to either overlook or undervalue is their internal sense of identity, the way their people think about what the purpose of the company is and the way their people connect to the brand and to the purpose of the company. And uh, that is actually a massive asset that if you align it to where you want to go and foresight is the process is a process that does exactly that you're much more likely to get there and i think uh, when companies think of assets they think of it in a pretty literal way of like what you know i don't know what kind of factories do we have what kind of things are we good at making but they would do well to invest um some time in thinking about how their people perceive the purpose of the company and making sure they're not going against that hopefully we've all experienced those times when you're inside a company that's growing, it's growing organically, and it's in sync with its environment. There's this wonderful fit between what you're doing, what how the purpose of what you're doing, and what's happening in the world. Th those periods of time, as a futurist, I would like to see happen more often. <laughs> I would love to see it more the case that where there's, instead of these short periods of time where the company is growing because it's perfectly in sync with the environment around it and with its identity, that needs to happen more often. And for me, when I started Wavepoint last year, one of the critical pieces of it was organic growth. How does foresight and innovation create organic growth? Because when you do that, you create almost these flow states where you get incredible profit because you've lined up your identity and your assets with where the market is going. Well, let's think about, you know, in organizations or companies where that flow state doesn't exist for them today. These huge polarizing events or these change events can be an opportunity when everything is unmoored and unfrozen to recalibrate, right? They create an opportunity for you to, you know, right the ship in some way and take advantage of something you may have missed. Let's take Facebook for an example, right? This is a prime example of a company that is struggling with the fact that who they profess to be and what they're actually doing is really at odds. and the people working for the company and making that company possible are going wait a minute no we're, this is not okay we're not going to we're not going to be we're not going to participate in this not to mention of course the customers that are also pulling back from that company so is there anything facebook could do now to actually pivot and and make things right 
Well, I think there's been examples in the past of companies that have done a full 180 and, and somehow survived. And you look at them and you're like, they, they're not going to make it. <laughs> and yet they've pulled the 180 and they've come back. And I think Steve is absolutely right. There's this period of time of politicization is an enormous opportunity for companies, either companies that are going down the wrong path or companies who, again, historically have not chosen a path, who have not chosen to engage in the social and political life of the market and, and stuck very firmly to their, the economic parts of the market. It's a good opportunity to come in and, and, and take a side. When a company chooses to take a side, maybe even if they haven't historically, they can look back in the past, back to their founding or to, to the early days of the company and pull out a story of something the founder did to save the plant. They really work because they say, hey, listen, okay, yeah, we're choosing sides again, but if you think about it, we're connecting this way back to our mm -hmm. origin story. And almost any company could do that. Almost any company could find a, a story or an allegory or a time that the company responded in the past, in, their, in the early days, that they can bring forward now to, to sort of say, this is why we're making the choices we're making today, because you know it's a long-term part of our identity. I mean, I would um, say Apple does this in, in really interesting ways, and there's certainly plenty of flaws in political challenges with Apple to be sure, but one of the things that I think they do really well is privacy. And I would link that back to the entire uh, spirit of Apple has always been about the experience of, of interacting with Apple products and Apple experiences. And this sort of unerring focus on the end user and how that is the most important thing, what their experience is the most important thing and understanding that trust is such a key component of that which is why Apple has been much more protective and has, in my opinion, done a much better job in privacy than anyone else of the big uh, data companies out there In the there 21st right now. century, it's not, your user experience isn't just interacting with an interface or interacting with the technology, it's literally your personal privacy. Yeah. And especially, I think the key word there is experience. As all companies are gonna start moving into an experience economy, the, you have to have, you have to understand your assets and capabilities and your identity in a much broader way, you have to count on your employees to deliver an experience versus just a product. And so that's really important. So in the past, if again, if we want to go back to the Ford metaphor, if I'm Ford, I count on my employees to come into a plant and stamp a piece of metal and stick it on something. Now, I'm, if I'm Ford, if you look at some of their new experience models that they're building, like uh, transportation as a service, I'm counting on my employees to have potentially very direct relationships with their customers in the service of creating an experience for them. The need for your employees to embody your identity in an experience economy is much higher than in previous economies, like a product or even a service economy. So you have to think about the future. We all do it, but there needs to be a practicality to how you approach it. Otherwise, it's just so much noise. And processes like Foresight exist to help make that thinking and planning for the future practical in a way that doesn't just give you a perspective on where you might go, but also can bring your people along and connect the choices that you make back to your identity so that you're doing things authentically and you're doing things that you're likely to succeed at. When we're thinking about things, we've been talking a lot about politics and of course, everything that's happening politically is being amplified by other trends, as you said. It's never just a singular thing that is um, driving change. 
where do you begin? Where do you start if you want to make this plan to be more proactive about the future? I think it's a scary jump off point for companies that are saying to themselves, we need to be more aligned with our customer base and we need to take stands to let them know that we are with them. It's a scary time. And I think we've talked about the need to really understand the origin story of your identity and who you are and really to be able to understand why it is that people come in and work for you every day and what values they have so you can make a choice. Say you're a company that makes and designs and, and sells compound bows for hunting. Your employee base and your his history is going to be probably more skewed to one political party than another, right? you're probably okay leaning into that. On the other hand, if you are a tech giant that came out of downtown San Francisco and your employees are liberal millennials, you're going to have a tougher time embracing the same group as the bow hunters. And it is back to understanding your identity and the identity of the people that are your employees. Because again, you're counting on them to be much more engaged in delivering of your product and your delivering experiences. And so you're counting on your employees to be aligned and engaged in a far more real way. So I'd ask you guys, how do you help companies understand what their, what their employees are thinking about their identity and, and, and understanding getting alignment for, my, for identity with employees? I think that the origin story that you mentioned is, is a really powerful artifact that a surprising number of companies have, though they don't always realize how powerful of a thing it is and they don't always foster it, but it's uh, usually the employees that hold pieces of that origin story. And one of the things that we do in speaking to people, and we, we don't just talk to a small core of the team in marketing or branding, we, we actually try to talk to as many people as they'll let us talk to. And a lot of the time, that's our starting point is how did this start? Why are you here? What are you passionate about? What do you, why do you get up in the morning? Um, and the reality is that it's not just about capturing market share. It's that's of course always going to be critical, but it's also about capturing the energy of your employees so that they'll deliver their best for you. And it's also about shaping the world in the direction that you genuinely believe it should go because every single company makes a difference. It's an aggregate of choices that ultimately drives us to where we want to go. And the more people lean into who they truly are, instead of focusing only and exclusively on how can we get the biggest market share, the more we have the more diverse ecosystem. And I think once you find those common threads um, among the people in the organization and you connect them to the stories, the artifacts of the company's history, and you get everyone aligned there, then it's about turning outward and, and giving people confidence in who their market is. So we're talking about choosing sides, possibly being polarizing. I think a lot of times it's, it, it is about market shares. And in a general way, it's what are my competitors doing and how can we have a piece of that pie? And the, the economy is moving in a more niche affinity-based direction with the way that customers engage with the companies that they buy things from. And so if you can align the purpose of the company, the people, what they're working toward, what the legacy of that company is, what their story is to an audience that would have a deep relationship with them based on their unique offering, their unique purpose, the sides they choose to sit on, that creates a massive energy and, and, and opportunity for companies to 
occupy maybe a crowded space? Occupy a crowded space with confidence. The, a better question to ask isn't, what are my competitors doing, but what could I be doing? What could I be doing better first? You ask that question first before you ask the question of, okay, what, what is everybody else doing? Because then you're coming from a place of power as opposed to from a place of assuming that you have to catch up to somebody. You mentioned power. The other power is in leadership. So it is one thing for us to understand and from surveys and other things and history and origin stories, understanding a corporate identity. It's also important for leaders to reflect that back and augment or even shift it. One of my favorite CEOs is Indra Nui at PepsiCo, mm -hmm. who knew that the company had to take a different path away from just sugary drinks and snacks and move into wellness products. And when I was there, she had done such a great job of communicating that it was already deeply part of the new, the company's new identity, even back in, in, and this was in 2009, there is a need for leadership on this and, and leaders have to have the confidence to step out and, and say these things. And yes, what will help them is all these things that we're hearing internally from your stakeholders in terms of why they're associated with the organization. There's a bit of foresight that says, here's where the future is going to be. And that alignment of, okay, here's who we are and who we were, and here's who we need to become to be in the future. That gap requires leadership and foresight can help leaders be confident in reflecting that back to the stakeholders and to their customers and, and out to the market. So PepsiCo is a, is a great example of uh, taking pieces of your identity and using it as footholds to move towards a future that is asking you to evolve. What Indra did was identify that people don't just come to PepsiCo for junky food, they come for fun food. And that gave flexibility to redefining what that could be. Because it, just because it was fun doesn't mean it had to be also unhealthy. And that then creates that wiggle room to innovate within that space without having asking your people to detach from their identity. And that's really important because it's much harder to move people and to get them to really think comfortably if you're ripping away their foundation. Yeah, fun and convenience. So mm -hmm. what, what they realized, PepsiCo realized they're incredibly good at making food that is shelf stable, um, cheap and accessible. You can't say that a lot about a lot of health food right now. It continues to be extremely hard to deliver fresh, healthy food that is shelf stable, cheap and convenient. <laughs> and for PepsiCo, the realization of cracking that nut creates value. Yeah. And so there's an example of a historical company that if you looked on the outside of it, you would think they're not fit for kind of the way the world is going in terms of snacks. But they were able to draw on some of their historical qualities and their historical identity and make that shift with great leadership and, and, and foresight. And what's interesting about the, the Pepsi example is, yes, that's where the market was going. But likely, you know, 2008, 2009, internally at Pepsi, a very large company, you probably had people, employees that were like, man, I wish that we would make healthier food. So you give the leader a purpose to lead her people in a way that they, they want to be led. And she does it inclusively, not just for the health nuts, but for the legacy of what the product is. And it creates this sort of perfect unity to, yes, enter a changing market, but really to galvanize her people. And meanwhile, Wall Street is battering PepsiCo 
for not just making more Pepsi. So yeah. it's just incredible. The amount of pressure that was on to make that transition was really extreme, just quarter by quarter. So that's a continues to be an, an interesting example. So are we essentially asking companies to bite the bullet and really, on one hand, take a look and really dig into who they really are in preparation for how they might move toward the future and then ignore the immediate noise that's like happening right now and look a little further out where it's less cloudy and less messy into the future and go, okay, we know who we are now and we know where we want to be and the future that we want to shape. And yes, the middle part is messy and noisy, but we now can start to navigate it step by step because we have our two endpoints. Well, messy, noisy, and, and in the case of what Christian just said, painful, or quarter to quarter painful if you're a public company and your shareholders are not happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and getting back to what Steve said, though, this is the opportunity that the messy bit is the opportunity space, right? You can only go so wrong. <laughs> when the market is turbulent. It is a wonderful opportunity to start getting out into the market and testing these things and being able to pivot as you move forward into the right voice you need for the long term. Again, we're on the verge of the election, a lot of uncertainty happening right now. Uh, no one really knows which direction it's going to go. Um, but some of the takeaways you know, from this conversation are foresight and objective view of the future and trends helps create some comfort. And an idea of where things might go certainly helps you identify scenarios that are outside of your purview that might be, you know, two to five to 10 years down the road. And then a solid handle on your identity and leading your people and understanding your audience and how you, you might make a polarizing choice and take a stand in order to, to maintain, you know, your position in the market or the health of your business is a good move. It's okay to turn down the noise a little bit. You don't have to turn it off. But do turn it down so you can invest the time in thinking about who you are and stand your ground and then look ahead because, yes, it's messy right now, but it's there's a clear path if you look far enough out to where things are going. And you can make a choice now as to what part you're going to play. You've been listening to Wavepoint Found, the podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change. I'm Vessi Ivanova. And I'm Steve Hurst. And we're with Found Brand Agency. We'll help our clients launch brands, ideas, and products by keeping them grounded in their identity as they navigate change. I'm Christian Cruz, founder of Wavepoint. We help companies use the future to grow their products and services, contribute to their communities, and create a better planet. Our show is produced by Found Brand Agency, with original score by Richard Carpenter. You can find past episodes and subscribe for future episodes by visiting anchor.fm slash wavepointfound. Thank you for listening.